0: about stories, right? And especially as we get into here, one another stories, what, what God is doing in each person's life. This morning, we're going to think about this concept of story from Ephesians 2, uh, 1 through 10. So if you, if you have a Bible, open it up to Ephesians 2. If you're using one of the Bibles that we provided for you there, those black Bibles in the row, it's page eight, uh, sorry, 976, 976 of those Bibles that we've provided for you. And if, if, if I were just to take an educated guess, I'm not a very smart guy, but if I were to take an educated guess, my, my, my guess would be that as Jesse was sharing his story, there's some pieces of it that you can identify with and say, yeah, you know what, that, that's kind of how my story played out or is playing out uh, today. And so I just want to ask you, where are you in, in the story? Because our lives are like a story. Everyone has a story. From, from the opening of sentences when we uh, have this wonderful arrival in the lo- labor and delivery unit, right? I mean, I, I hope your arrival was wonderful. Mine was, my mom tells me, uh, even though there's a couple complications. Uh, um, God was gracious to me. And, uh, you know, from, from, that, from that opening arrival to the time where the final uh, sentences are written in our life when we are perhaps laid in a grave, God is writing a story. From from the greatest moments of our lives to the most mundane moments of our lives, our lives are like a story. Even in these moments, the pen is on the paper. God is writing a story. There's no moment that is exempt from the story that is being written in our lives. So let me ask you, how is is your story turning out? What does your story look like? Are you happy with your story? Are you you pleased with with where this is going? What what will your story look like in the end? Are there some pieces of your story that, that you wish you could go back and hit the delete button on? Maybe modify. Maybe insert some different characters into certain pieces of, of, of the story. Maybe there's some chapters that you would just like to totally do away with, and you know that's not possible. Though we don't want to admit it, all of us would have to say, look, we, we, are, we, are, we are not perfect at writing our own story. And so what God invites us to do is God invites us to take the story of our lives, and he, he invites us to get wrapped up into his greater story. God offers an opportunity for, for him to become the author of our story because God writes the best stories. He writes the best stories of redemption. And so what I want to talk about this morning is, is the story of, of, of humanity, the story of, of God, and the story of, of God's salvation, the gospel, how, how people can get caught up into this greater story of God and the gospel. And my central kind of thesis, what, what I really want us to consider this morning is that this story that God writes in our salvation is a story greater than we know. The story of Christian salvation is a story greater than we know. If you ever want a concise explanation of God's story of salvation, I want just to encourage you to run to Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. I can't tell you how many times I've sat down with someone who's maybe new to Christianity, or, or they're really kind of exploring what it means to, to follow Jesus and to 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 become uh, something something different, something new. We all we all have that longing for something better and something uh, renewed in our lives, and so so many times I just come to these ten verses, and I've walked through them with uh, with, with many many people so what we're going to see are three truths as we work through these 10 verses. Three truths about God's story that is greater than we know. Okay, so my first encouragement for us this morning is this. Recognize man's desperate problem is greater than we know. Look at verses 1 through 3 of Ephesians 2. It says this, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you walked. And so what Paul does from the outset is he pushes back against the, the modern presumption that we are inherently great people, like that we're, we're filled with all this goodness and there's nothing really wrong with us. It's only our circumstances and only the effects of those around us that, that show that, that we have something wrong and broken within us. And Paul's just going to say, look, that's fundamentally not true. And this is not because Paul is out on a mission to be a pessimist, okay? He's not trying to be harsh with people that he's writing to. He's just trying to be real, you know what I'm saying? So, so he says, look, this is the way it is. Before someone um, realizes God's plan for them and they get caught up in that greater story, the, the problem is, this desperate problem is, he says it in very vivid terms. You can't get it any more straightforward than this. He says, and you were dead. This is our desperate problem problem. Paul does not say, you are sick. Anybody been sick recently? I mean, stuff's going around, and so so it's not like like we're just sick, and we're going to get better with just a little bit of, you know, medicine and improvement, okay? He doesn't say we're weak. He does not say that we're spiritually lethargic in need of a turbo shot. Can I get a witness, New England, huh? Um, it's not like that, all right? Dunkin' Donuts, man, you guys must be Starbucks fans. I didn't think that's the way it was. And nah, I we go to Dunkin' Donuts, right? Um, I, I go to both. Anyway, uh, so, 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 so we're not spiritually lethargic, just in need of, of a boost. We don't need just a little tweaking and everything will be okay. Paul says we are dead and we are dead in our sins and trespasses. What what does this mean? We hear these these terms thrown out a lot, and sometimes we don't even like them. We don't even want to say the word sin as if that that could even be true. But Paul says we're dead in our sins and trespasses. It means that we've radically fallen short of God's standard and stepped over the line of his intentions for our lives. Tragically, we we all have uh, rejected God's love And we have gone our own way in life. And so Cornelius Plantinga uh, talks about sin being a distortion or a corruption of God's original design for our lives in this world. The biblical concept of God's original design is this term shalom. You hear us talking about it at Redemption Hill. Shalom refers to God's design in the beginning that was full of, of flourishing and goodness and the, the way that life ought to be, the way that we want life to be in our best moments. And so this is what he says about sin. Listen to this. He says, in some shalom is God's design for creation And redemption. What is sin then? Sin is blamable human vandalism of these great realities and therefore an affront to their architect and builder. Do Do you hear that? Our sin against God, our stepping over the line of his intention, our rejection of his way is like cosmic vandalism. We get out our spray paint cans and our crowbar, and we, and we, and we vandalize the beautiful world that God has made. That which is true and beautiful and good, we, we make it ugly and, and untrue and broken. Sin is not a minor mishap before God. Sin is actually quite complex. I want you to think about the complexity of sin for a moment. Sin touches everything. There's no part of our lives that sin does not touch. It touches our mind, what we think. Our our minds don't work like like they they ought to, Our, our rational powers are distorted and corrupted. We have evil thoughts. That, that often flow from the uh, evil desires, what we want. I always ask this question, like, why do I sin? Christians even ask this question, right? I mean, we get so frustrated that we're not perfect, like Jesse was saying. We, we still have sin in our lives. And, and so why do we sin? Well, the Bible says we sin because we want to sin. It's, it's that simple. There's something in us that desires that which is contrary to God. And so, so we sin because we want to. Our, our desires are, are corrupt, what we want. Number number three, our affections. What we love, what we love and what we hate, what we chase after, and what we despise. Those are also twisted. Number four, our will, our volition. What we choose, what we what we what we uh, want to to bring into our lives, or what we reject in our lives. Our our will that is also fundamentally broken. And then finally, even our emotions. Our emotions, what we feel. I mean, don't, didn't you ever like feel like, man, I, I ought to be sad? Like, I ought to, to, to be you know, ashamed in this moment, but I, but I really don't feel that way. I ought to experience greater joy in my life, but, but something's, something's not adding up there. I mean, there's no part of our lives that sin does not touch, it touches everything and it also touches everyone. So look at, did you see the progression? I mean, the Bible is so deep that, that it's, and it's not just enough to like hear it once, Jesse read it, Tanner read it, oh, I got this, right? I mean, it's like, no, he, like, he starts and he says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And so the you there, Paul has kind of excluded himself out of that, and he's saying like, you Ephesians, okay, you Gentiles, you non-Jews, you were dead. But, but Paul's not picking on the Ephesians. He says, and we too all once lived, Right? We all too once had these passions and and, and desires of the mind and the body. We were chasing after these things. So now he's saying, not not just you Gentiles, but us too, us Jews. We're we're all in this thing together. And then, as if to to kind of leave no room for doubt, Paul at the end of verse 3 says, What? He says, Like the rest of mankind. I mean, he like totally steps out of his generation. He says like everyone before us and everyone after us, all of humanity, we're all broken. We're all dead in our sins. We're all chasing after things that don't look like God. So we're all in the same boat. It's like sin is complex and it is comprehensive. Added to that, not only are we dead in our trespasses and sins, we also were living for the world and Satan's ways. Look back in verse two, it says, in which you once walked following the course of this world. So when Paul uses the term walk, he is referring to how we live, our manner of life, how we go about our daily basis. And he's saying, look, the the way that that characterized your life was was the world's way of doing things, the world's system that that is not congruent with, with God's ways. But then even further than that, what is worse, we were also following the prince of the power of the air. So what is Paul talking about here? He's, he's talking about Satan. He's talking about the devil. We, we lived under the influence, the domain of darkness that Satan rules over. So that's hard for us to think about, right? But we're actually, apart from God's grace, we are, we are operating in the sphere that Satan is ruling over that is, that is contrary to God and his ways, that is averse to God and his ways. And so I don't know about you, but, but, but I, I agree with C.S. Lewis when he says that, this is to paraphrase him, he basically says there are kind of two standard approaches to uh, man's view of Satan, okay? On the one hand, we sensationalize Satan. In other words, like we, we pump him up and Satan is, is everywhere and in everything, right? So the only explanation for why there's, there's bad in our lives is like the devil made me do it, right? And it's just like Satan is, is everywhere under every rock. But then there's also another opposite extreme that is also dangerous, and, and that is the, the, that we are ignorant of Satan and his ways. Satan is basically nowhere and in nothing, and in, in both extremes on, on both sides of the spectrum are, are, are totally wrong. So we have to see that, that we, we're, we're living for the ways of the world. We were under the, the domain of, of Satan. But then the consequences, what are the consequences of this? I mean, uh, physical death, spiritual death is what this, this uh, term refers to in verse 1. But then, but then in verse 3, we see just how serious this is. And I hope you'll receive this this morning and really weigh it out in your mind and in your heart. He says this, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. What does wrath mean? We, we, we love to talk about God as love, and God is, is love. God is infinitely loving, more loving than we could ever imagine. We can't begin to wrap our minds around how great God is in his love, but God is also a wrathful God. In fact, if we properly understand his love and his holiness, we know that wrath is just the natural expression of, of his love and holiness, you say, well, well, how can you understand this, okay? Wrath is, wrath is God's holy hatred of sin, that which is evil, that which vandalizes his holy and good and perfect world. Wrath is his essential antagonism to everything that is evil. And you say, like, I can't reconcile that in my mind because I know that God is loving, but I'm not, I don't really want to accept that God has wrath in his heart, that he would exercise in this world. Well, let, let, me, let me point us to David Wells here. He, he wrote a book called The Holy Love of God. And in that book, he talks about the wrath of God. Look, look, follow along with me, if you will, as I, as I unpack this for us. Okay, he says this, if we are to understand the biblical teaching on wrath, we must distinguish between wrath in God and what we so often see in human anger human anger is often accompanied by malice, vindictiveness, retaliation, revenge, and hatefulness. That's man's anger. That's man's wrath. But God's wrath, of course, has no such defilements. It is a pure expression of his holiness. It is not an outburst of irrational temper. His wrath is instead about restoring to an unchallenged position all that is good and pure and true and beautiful and right. And it's about removing everything that challenges his rule because it is bad, impure, rebellious, repugnant, or otherwise evil. The wrath of God is God's pure reaction to all that is impure. Do you see that? So, so if, if Wells is right, and I believe he, he nails the biblical account of the wrath of God, then I, for one, want a God who has wrath. I want God to wipe out everything that is impure, not true, not good, not beautiful, so that he can usher in everything that is. So if we if we find ourselves full of sin and evil then then we're going to be judged for that sin and evil because God is a holy God. Like do we really like we really don't want to sweep the holiness of God and the wrath of God and the judgment of God under the rug because then we have a world that is going to be in disarray and has no hope of this of this future restoration. Right? I mean don't we we all want justice until we're the ones that is that are under the, 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 the judgment, right? And that points to our sinfulness even all the more. So, so as we think about the wrath of God, as we think about the serious nature of the consequences of our sin, I just want to ask everyone this morning, as you think about eternity, where will your story end up? I mean, we believe that heaven is real and this new heaven's and new earth that God is going to bring in Christ where he unites all things in him. This perfect place that he created in the beginning, the shalom, it will be restored and recreated. That's real. But hell is just as real. And what makes hell hell is that it is, it is separation from God forever. That's, what makes heaven heaven is that we are in the presence of God in relationship with him for which we were originally created in the beginning. And what makes hell, hell is the very opposite of that. And so if there's something in you, like Jesse was talking about, that says, you know what, I, th- I think that's true, that makes sense, that, that's, that's right. And I want to encourage you to, to, to come on the side of Christ, Forsake your old ways, forsake your sin, forsake your, your trespasses and, and evil deeds and turn to Christ so that you might not face the judgment and wrath of God. I mean, don't, don't you think that, that fundamentally we as people, we, we really want sin and evil to be eradicated in this world? Don't, don't you think that's true? I mean, we can we can still say that evil is real. I mean, just take just take the, the week's uh, last week's uh, news uh, for example. Uh, who saw the story that came out last last uh, Thursday that in Newtown, Connecticut, the city council uh, unanimous, unanimously voted to demolish the house of Adam Lanza. anyone see that? Now, now, why is that? Is because everyone who lived in that neighborhood and those who lived in that community said that that, that house was just a constant reminder of the evil that resided there. And so if I'm in Newtown, man, I'm, I'm totally for that. Let's, let's demolish that. Let's remove that because maybe that will kind of help us as we, as we heal and process out of such a horrific tragedy. But if we're being honest... There are pieces of our heart that we know. There are are thoughts we have had. There are deeds we have done that we wish we could remove and demolish, and yet we know that they are there. And the only way they can be demolished and removed forever is through the blood of Christ. It's through what Christ has done for us. And that's where Paul goes. I mean, verses one through three are like the, the dark night sky. I mean, we have to, if, if we're going to see the brilliance of salvation, how bright and true and wonderful it is, then we need to see how dark our background is apart from God's grace. And so verses 1 through 3 are, are difficult news. They're hard to absorb. They're hard for us to wrestle with. But, but they set the stage for us to see the brilliance and the radiance of God's salvation in Christ, which is where Paul goes in verses 4 through 6. So, so we see man's desperate problem in verses 1 through 3, but, but now we see God's radical provision in verses 4 through 6. Let's read these verses together. I love these first two words, but God... But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I mean, these these first two words in in verse 4 are some of the most beautiful words in the Bible, but God. While you were dead in your sins, but God. While you lived for yourself and the ways of this world, but God. While you were greedy and wanted your own ways and chased after self-glory and were filled with all of these these evil thoughts and deeds and and motives, but God. God. Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, assesses these two words like this he says this with these two words we come to the introduction to the christian message the peculiar specific message which the christian faith has to offer us these two words in and of themselves in a sense contain the whole gospel the gospel tells us of what god has done god's intervention It is something that comes entirely from outside us and displays to us that wondrous and amazing and astonishing work of God. But God, what is the wondrous and amazing and astonishing work of God? It is what he has done for us in Christ. And Paul lays it out with three descriptors in verses four through six. He says, we are made alive with Christ. We have been raised up with Christ and we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. So so look at the contrast that Paul is building here. He says, you were dead, spiritually dead to God. You had no relationship with God. You were estranged from God. You were alienated from God. But through Christ, you have now been made alive to God. You have spiritual life now through Christ. I mean, is there anything better than the gift of life? Is there anything more we fear in life than, than death? Probably not for most people. And so this gift of life God gives through Christ. Listen to John chapter 1, verses 11 through 13. It says this, speaking of Jesus. It says, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. We see this in the Gospels. Many of the, many, many of the Jews rejected Jesus. In fact, they were the ones that crucified him on a Roman cross. They spearheaded the, the death of Christ. But, but then what does it say? But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God brings us the, the, the light of truth in the gospel. And when we believe and trust in who, who God is and, and what Christ has done for us, then, then we are totally remade from the inside out. This is the amazing news of the gospel, that, that, that God takes people who had no spiritual pulse and he puts in us a new heart that we might live a totally different life before him. He has made us alive. He has raised us up with Christ. In other words, uh, just as Christ was raised from the dead, now we are also raised to live this totally new life before God and before others. And added to that, it says that he has seated us with him in the heavenly place. I mean, this is mind-blowing truth that Paul wants us to grasp, okay? so, So in other words, okay, as God sees us, if you are in Christ, he sees you, right with Christ, where he is seated in the heavenly places. So in other words, we, we now are reigning with Christ. We are, because we are united to him, we, we now have the power over all of this, this evil and, these, and these, 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 these powers of darkness in our world. We can triumph over the temptations that come our way, and we will one day reign with him forever. God has made this true for us. And it's all because we have been united with Christ. So is why we're calling this series In Christ. Paul, don't forget, he says, in Christ, that phrase, over 39 times, I think, in this book of, of Ephesians. And so what Jesus says, he says this in the Gospels. He says, look, what is mine belongs to you. How good is that? Whatever belongs to Jesus belongs to those who follow Jesus. So if Christ has been raised, you have been raised. If Christ is seated in the heavenly places, you are seated in the heavenly places. This is our position. This is how God views us. And so so the story of of the gospel, now even the Christian life is, look, this is true for you positionally, so now live practically out of your position in Christ. Does that make sense or is that pretty deep? I know it's deep. Let me try to say it again, okay? This, this, This is true for you now that you have been united to Christ, God sees you in Christ. So now it's not your righteousness, it's his righteousness. It's not your life, it's his life. It's not your resurrection, it's his resurrection. All these things are spiritually true for us. And so now we need to live in light of this reality. Is that better? So so some theologians aptly say, look, become who you are. Isn't Isn't that good? Become who you are. You are in Christ. You are are alive in him. You have been raised up with him. So now just live like that. Grow in that reality. This is the good news of Christian salvation. And so all of this, like how does all of this happen? This amazing uh, news that, that, that God has brought to us in Christ, it happens because God is great. We saw last week that God is great in power, verse 19 of chapter 1. Now we see in verse 4 of chapter 2 that God is great in love. Look at it again. We read it 100 times and never get tired of reading this. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us. It's like this is is a done deal. Like God has extended his love to us. We don't have to wonder if God is going to do it, okay? Like, I don't know about you. Like, I didn't do this as a little kid or teenager. Maybe some of you girls did. I hope the guys didn't. But, you know, you ever seen, like, the daisy? You pick the petals off, right? He loves me. He loves me. not. Right? Girls, raise your hand if you ever did that, like, as a kid, a child. Okay, thank you. Uh, men, raise your hand. They're like, no, don't raise your hand. All right. Um, we do this. I didn't do it, man. I didn't do it. All right. I don't think I did. I hope not. I hope I didn't. All right. So, 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 sometimes we we like we play this game with God. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. Because we have experienced human love in the way that we long to, we wonder if God might not love us in the same way that other people have felt to love us. And yet, it says right here, God, because of the great love with which He loved us. I mean, this is this is a done deal. He has poured out his love for us in Christ. We never have to wonder if, if God has loved us. It's not a guessing game any longer. Romans 5.8 says, but, but, but God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is how God has shown his love to us. And so behind Ephesians 2, we have to understand the cross of Christ is looming large in the background. Paul already talked about it in chapter 1, in verse 7, where he says, In him we have redemption, what? Through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. It's the blood of Christ that makes this life and resurrection and this new seat with Christ in the heavenly places. That's what makes it all possible. So we look to Christ and we look to the life that he lived that we should have lived. And we look to the death that he died in our place like we sing in almost every song so far today that while we deserve death, Christ died for us. While we deserve judgment, Christ was judged in our place where we deserve wrath. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath on the cross. That's what was so horrific about the cross for Jesus. It wasn't physical death. It was the spiritual agony that he would suffer on the cross when he took the wrath of God in our place. I mean, like, does that ever give you chills? I hope it does. Does it ever... Does it ever cause a tear to, to run down your face? Does it ever get you excited and motivate you to live differently because of, because of what Christ has done for us? God is great in love, and he is also rich in mercy. That's what we're talking about. He withholds that which we do deserve, right? We deserve wrath and judgment and death, but God withholds that because he placed it on Christ. Paul, again, is building these stark contrasts in verses 1 through 3 and verses 4 through 6. Salvation is more than simply the forgiveness of sin, as amazing as that is. Christian salvation is the deliverance, okay, moving from this position to that position where we move from death to life, from the power of Satan to the power of Christ, from the wrath of God to the love, grace, and mercy of God. So if you're sitting there and you're thinking, man, I've never heard this, but, but this sounds good. It sounds true. Then I'm just saying, like, w- why wouldn't you say, okay, like, I, I want that. I, I'm in on that. Like, I, I see it adds up. I see this around me. I see this in me. And, and I need to experience but God. I need to experience love and mercy and grace and forgiveness through God's love in Christ. God's provision. In Christ is greater than we know. And then finally, what I want us to see is this. Recognize God's ultimate purpose in our salvation is greater than we know. Look at verse seven. So that, why has God done all of this? So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Okay, so if you kind of get excited before, okay, we might just kind of ratchet up just a little bit because this is amazing, all right? What is the purpose of our salvation? The ultimate purpose. What is, what is even higher and better and deeper and truer than us simply being reconciled to God, which is, is amazing, is that God forever is showing the riches of his grace to the world in people like you and I. This is the ultimate purpose of salvation. God saved us to showcase the riches of his glory. So, so if you are in Christ, then you are going to shine brilliantly, for all eternity, so that people can see how great and gracious God is. That's the purpose. That's the ultimate purpose. So that, in the coming ages, this is what God is going to do. And so maybe this will help us uh, think about this, okay? Tonight, the New England Patriots are going to receive uh, this trophy. That's right. All right, that's this by faith, okay? I know the game starts at like 6.30 tonight. Party six o'clock be there. Um, so, so, so the Lombardi Trophy is coming back to New England. We think, we believe, right? It's what we're going to be. It's what we're going to be cheering for. Most of us keep your mouth, you know, shut if you're not. Uh, so, 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 so let's let's think about. Let's think about this trophy in light of God's trophies of grace. Okay, let's kind of do a little comparison and contrast. All right, so, so this trophy is going to be uh, presented, uh, presumably, before an audience of roughly 160 million people worldwide. All right, that's decent. All right, I don't know about you, but like, I don't know, the, the trophies that I got, like from basketball, like Hot Shot and all that, like, I think like maybe 10 other kids saw that, all right? So uh, 160 million, that's not bad. Um, but, but God's trophies of grace, all of creation, all of creation, all those who are aligned with God and all those who are opposed to God, everyone will see the glorious riches of God's grace in his trophies of grace. And what about the duration? I mean, this Super Bowl it's going to be really important, right? We're scheduling our whole week around it, and we're going to watch it for roughly four hours. And, we're, and, and you know, and we're Patriots fans, so we're going to remember that in 2014, 15 sorry, it's 15. Uh, 2015, we, we won the Super Bowl, but, but most everyone in the world, the 160 million, like, who won Super Bowl 35? 25? 41. That's what I thought. I mean, like, we, the, the duration of, of, this, of this glory is so fading. It's so fleeting. And yet, don't miss this little phrase in verse 7. The duration of God's showcase of grace, it says, it will last in the coming ages. So what's the, what's the fancy translation for that, okay? It's forever, all right? for Forever. F.F. F. Bruce says this. He says, uh, with a poetic vibe, he says this one age supervening upon another, like successive waves of the sea, as far into the future as thought can reach. That's how long God's showcase of grace goes on and on and on and on, like successive waves, one after the other, as far as our minds can reach, and even beyond that. That's how long God will showcase how great his riches are in those whom he saves. I hope you are a trophy of God's grace, because what do trophies do? Don't miss. This is good. Trophies, trophies tell stories, right? I mean. When Brady and, and Belichick and all these patriots lift up the Lombardi trophy tonight, it's going to tell a story of their hard work, right? Their blood, sweat, and tears, how they came together as a team. It's going to tell the story that, that, of, of man. But the trophies of God's grace are, are a different story. They, they tell the story of, of God's work his work in Christ, what he has accomplished that we have now been united to by faith. And so don't miss the ultimate purpose of our salvation is to show how great and brilliant and radiant God's grace is in Christ. And so I really think as I've been studying through these these verses, I think verses 8, 9, and 10 just further explain the riches of his grace, the immeasurable riches of his grace. So Paul goes on, and these are are really often quoted verses in the Bible. Perhaps you've memorized them. If you haven't, please do so maybe even this week. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Can we read that together? Let's let's read that together. Verse, Verse eight, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So so Paul makes it abundantly clear, okay? There is no self-achieved salvation in this life. God's grace comes to us, and and it is all of him. And then he completes the argument in verse 10, and he says that, that we are then God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, so many people I meet in Medford, I, I say, you know what? God offers you this gift, which a gift can't be earned or it becomes a wage, right? So, it's, that's what Paul says in Romans. He says, this is, this is totally a gift. It's free grace that God offers us in Christ, which, which is difficult to understand. And so, we think, well, well, how can that be? Because if, if God offers us a free gift, then we're going to live however we want to live in this life. And Paul says, no, 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 no. When God makes you new on the inside, he so changes you and gives you new desires, new thoughts, a new will, new emotions, that now you're going to live differently. You've been created in Christ. Which I mean, did anyone create yourself? Anybody? No. Okay, so does anybody create themselves spiritually? No. All right. So so we're created in Christ. Now we're his workmanship created for good works. So God made you not so you can like sit back and chillax, you know, like, man, I'm going to heaven one day and I'm gonna spend eternity with Jesus, and it doesn't matter how I live my life. Absolutely not, okay? The Christian is saying, Man, God save me so that I can live for God and live a life full of good works. James 2.17 says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So our salvation is, is, is not a result of the works that we do, but the works are a result of God's salvation that he has worked in our lives. Do you see that? Another way to say it is that, that uh, the, the, the fruit of of our salvation are the works that we do, not the root of our salvation, okay? It doesn't, grace comes first and then the works flow through that grace. So God brings his great salvation to showcase his glorious riches and he he does this. We can never earn it. We can never be good enough. We just look to Christ. It's through faith that we believe in Jesus. We trust in what he did not claiming anything for ourselves, but, but casting ourselves on what Christ has done for us. And now God recreates us. He makes us totally new so that we can live a life full of good works. And so listen, every good thing that you do, if you're in Christ, it is a way to tell the better story of God's salvation. Perhaps some of you brought some of these uh, cans of soup over here. Super Sunday after all, right? So we... Played off that, and you remembered, okay? You remembered, and look at all these cans of soup to, to help feed uh, families in Medford. And so that's, that's a good work. But, but, but whatever God sets before us, because he's prepared these before us in advance beforehand, these are, are, are there for us that we might display who he is, show how great he is, the salvation that he's brought us. And so whatever, whatever sphere of life, your work, your family, moms, dads, your driving habits, sorry to go there, okay, shoveling snow, we're about to get another foot tomorrow, or something like that, be ready, all right, if you go shovel snow for a neighbor, that's a good work. If you pick up some trash after the service and throw it in the trash can, that's a, that's a good work, I mean, and, and these works don't achieve anything for us in the sight of God, they just show how great and awesome God is in our lives. God displays the riches of his grace. Did you see what he says here? I mean, Paul is a really good writer. He was a brilliant guy. So he says, we're created to walk in these good works. Paul said in, in, in the first few verses, we were walking in the ways, like another contrast, right? We lived for the ways of the world. Now we're living for God in good works. And so one person has said this about Ephesians 2. They said, this is the ultimate rags-to-riches story, from the lowest depths to the highest heights. Has your story been turned from spiritual rags to spiritual riches, from spiritual lows to spiritual heights? Because the gospel, the gospel is so good. This This is what we're about at Redemption Hill. The gospel is so good that it fundamentally influences and changes everything in our lives. So, so... Tim Keller puts it like this, because the gospel is endlessly rich, it can handle being the burden of being the one main thing of a church. And so is the gospel the main thing for you? Is the gospel the main thing in your life? Is the gospel what influences everything? It changes the way you look at people. You're no better than anyone else, even if they're still opposed to God. You look on them with compassion because God's grace has changed you when you didn't love Him. And you now look at people with potential because God has created all of us with with great expectation that we can now live differently because of who Christ is and what He's done. The gospel is the main thing. And we should build our lives upon it because it is the way that we get connected to God's shalom. And it is the way that we display, showcase the brilliance of God forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Let's pray. God, would you make these these truths true in our hearts? God, we, we fall so short like... These verses have reminded us and yet your grace goes further than our sin. Your love goes deeper than anything that we could ever do against you. And so Lord, we just want to say thank you for that. We're humbled by that. And I pray, Lord, that this week and every week that you would so change us from the inside out that we would live a life of good works because of the cross of Christ. Change us even now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.